Hey gang, welcome to Best Night Ever, a show where interesting people who do interesting things tell the story of their best night ever. I'm your host, Ian Hollihan. With me, as always, is my kitty cat co-host, Reggie Miller. Before we get started, I just want to give a, a big shout-out and show some love uh, to the city of Sacramento, California. Now, you might be asking yourself, why Sacramento, California? And frankly, I don't think I need a reason. It's a fine city. I got no beef with it. But the reality is, it's a city where Best Night Ever has the most subscribers. So, good on you, Sacktown. Uh, send me an email telling me I'm pretty and that I'm good enough. It's uh, bestnighteverpodcast at gmail.com. In fact, if you're even if you're not in Sacramento, uh, send us an email telling me I'm pretty and that I'm good enough. Today's episode has a lot of meat to it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with uh, all the uh, banter, uh, dilly-dally, dribble-drabble. But I will say, if you haven't subscribed yet, I'm not mad. Just, you know, do it. Our guest tonight is a super rad actress named Mary Birdsong. You might know her from the Disney show uh, Crash and Bernstein. It's about a real-life kid and a puppet and their buds. You also might know her as the uh, 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 stepmom uh, with alopecia in that movie Adventureland with Kristen Stewart and Ryan Reynolds. God damn it, they're good looking. But most of you probably know her as Deputy Kimball from the hit Comedy Central show Reno 911. So Mary Birdsong, welcome to the show. So excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Quick question. I, I don't want to give away your entire email, but your email is otisbird at miscellaneous.com. Now, this has nothing to do with your best and ever. Just, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Is your email a super duper obscure reference to a Superman 2? Um, it, it is not. It, that is, that would be really cool, uh, if it were. Have you seen, uh, the original Superman is movies? Is there a 1930s uh, movie of the original, original? Superman? Think, That's an interesting question. Was it just the TV series? So there were a series of Superman serials uh, in the 30s or 40s, and they were really short. They were like eight minutes long, and they came out every week, but they were short. They weren't like Gone with the Wind or anything. Oh, but uh, 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 the actor George Reeves, who was in the original Superman TV show, wasn't Gone with the Wind. The one- That's right! One of the, uh, one of the suitors. Or something. But in Superman 2 uh, with Chris Reeves and Gene Hackman, uh, what happens is these Kryptonians, the, the bad guys, they come to Earth and they mess shit up and they take over the government, trying to take over the world. And there's this great scene where they're in the Oval Office and Lex Luthor pretty much says to him, hey, guys, you're really powerful, but it'd be a lot easier to take over the world if you weren't such dicks. How about I, like, be your PR guy? All you have to do is give me Australia. Um, and Lex Luthor had this, like, dopey sidekick named Otis, played by Ned Beatty from Deliverance. There's this great scene where uh, uh, they're looking at a map of Australia and, and Lex Luthor's basking in his glory and he says, he's like going to the town, he's like, Casa del Lex, Lutherville, Marina del Lex, Otisburg. And then he's like, hey, wait a minute, Otisburg. And uh, Ned Beatty's like, oh, it's just a little thing, Otisburg. And anyways, it's it's probably my favorite part of the movie. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun. So I thought Otisburg was a reference to Otisburg. Nice. Dopey. Um, uh, so welcome to the show. <laughs> Is it cool if I ask you a few questions before we uh, hear your story? Oh, sure. Great. So the first thing isn't a question. It's just a, a comment or more so a declaration. You have a pretty uh, celebrated career. You have a lot to be proud of. But I just want to uh, say to you, congratulations on a, a, a really cool last name. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, Thank it's, you. It could have been Turtle Song, but you really lucked out. I know the show isn't about me, but my last name in Gaelic means short, arrogant person. And that's true. But I'm like 5'11". <laughs> because you came from that Irish village that full of giants, right? 5'11 is pretty tall, no? So I'm tall enough where in group photos, I always have to stand in the back. But I'm not tall enough where you can actually see me. So in group photos, it's just my nose up. Nose oh. <laughs> up. So I know you mainly from uh, Reno 911. 
Um, and I started following you on Instagram possibly like years ago. And I discovered that you are, in fact, dare I say, a talented artist. Thank you. The reason I bring it up is, I look, I'm not an artist. I just really like to draw. And I use Best Night Ever as kind of like a reason to keep doing it. And uh, I just wanted to know what came first. Was it, are, are you an actress first and then an artist? Or do they go hand in hand? Or Oh, well, uh, first and foremost, I remember when I saw the art on uh, sort of, you know, your your podcast's online you know, deal. I really, that's one of the things I was like, Oh, I really like the artwork. Um, Thank you. And I loved the episode I heard, but there, you know, this, it's so new. There's not a lot that I could sort of listen to. And so I was also going on the visual. So I was like, wow. So I had no idea that at first that you did the art yourself. And when I was very little, it was a close, uh, like a almost, they were almost simultaneous. I always think that the drawing came first for me. Because I kind of found drawing before I found public performing or voluntary, you know what I mean? Like, not just like school plays, but like, I'm actually going to choose to do this. But it's, it's a tricky thing because when I was really little, I was painfully, painfully shy. And what I would do, I think sometimes if I was scared, <laughs> is I would sort of like all of a sudden just go, you know, I disappear and then come out in the middle of the room with a bunch of people around in like a wig and a skirt and a funny, you know, cape. And I would do a character and people would laugh and I'd be like, this is awesome. So it was kind of a coping mechanism. And then later when I was like old, old enough for that to not be cool anymore to do that, I would really sort of disappear into drawing. And I mean, looking back now as somebody who's been in a lot of therapy, my therapist has referred to my art as self-regulating. I do think that you know, like there's a lot of science or whatever uh, evidence of art therapy being very therapeutic. I didn't think I was doing it for that reason, but I loved that feeling of like time sort of disappearing when I'm drawing. And, and I also love the fact that my ego, because I'm a performer professionally and not pursuing like a, a, a career as a painter or something, my ego isn't invested in it. And it's really wonderful when you do what you love for a living, which for me is acting and singing. So I still love drawing and yet I don't have a dollar figure attached to it. So there's, there's no stress factor. There's no neuroses. There's no like, how am I doing? Am I cool enough? Am I part of the cool club? Am I working? Am I not working? So to me, it's like finger painting. It's like, that wonderful place we all would get to when we were kids. And then when I started performing in like the age of 16 in school, I, that kind of took over and I just, I left drawing behind. And it wasn't until about, I think it was about 10 years ago that all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but I started drawing again every morning. No, that's great. Thank you, Mary. And, and uh, uh, listeners, if, if I may, if if, mind, if there's any single men listening with uh, which, which uh, mathematically, you know, uh, there has to be. But uh, <laughs> if you want a surefire way to become the hottest guy in a bar, do this. Go to a bar by yourself with a sketchbook, sit in the corner and just start doodling and, and give off the energy that you don't want to be messed with. And I'm not kidding. Women flock to you. Uh, really? Oh, dude, dude, it's unreal. So I used to live across the street from a bar called Duck Duck, and I would go there with my sketchbook. And if you looked at my sketchbook, I looked like a crazy person. Like there was one night I was just drawing people's hair. Like I would look at strangers and draw their hair. 
But these girls would come over and they would take my sketchbook and write their phone numbers in it. Granted, I, I, I've been with my girlfriend for six years. It's great. But if I had known this as a single man. You know what? I think you're right. I think there's something very, there's something very um, vulnerable. And, it, you know, it's almost like we don't feel sort of like preyed upon. So we feel like more open to kind of reach out to the man when it's like, oh, he's just doing something sweet and creative and he's got a talent and he's interesting. And I think that's really true. That works for women. So I don't think so for the same reason. I, I know like I'm, I, I'm being terrible. I'm telling listeners to, to be the predator. But if, if the gender roles were reversed, like if there was a young lady uh, sitting in a bar by herself drawing that guy who walked up to her would be such a Vic Ferrari dildo. Like, hey, doll face, you want to draw a picture? I, I don't think it would work out so well. But maybe I'm wrong. I tell you what, female listeners, try it out. Take, take the sketchbook. Uh, and let me know how it goes. Email bestnighteverpodcast at gmail.com. So anyways, uh, fans of the show uh, might remember in our debut episode where Mike Park told us the story of his best night ever, I briefly mentioned that my brother only liked two uh, musical groups. One was En Vogue, who did the song uh, uh, Free Your Mind and uh, uh, The Rest Will Follow. They also did the song uh, Never Gonna Get It. Whoa, 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 whoa. Talented, talented uh, group of ladies. But the other group was a, a band called They Might Be Giants. Right. Sorry. I'm yeah, yeah. Now, you were one of the first people I reached out to to be on the show. You responded saying that you uh, actually have a connection to They Might Be Giants. <laughs> Do tell. I, at the time, was friends with um, the actress Kate Flannery. Kate sang in a sort of a side project of John Flansburg's wife, Robin Goldwasser, who's just a phenomenal person and really talented. And they, she and her husband and Kate and a few other um, musicians and one other singer I can't remember formed a band called Monopuff. And it was very different than the Mighty Giants, but yet it, you could totally see John Flansburg doing it. It was kind of a little funkier. Robin played Lady Puff and Kate was Sister Puff and I was Sugar Puff and it was Mono Puff. And we wore wigs and funky outfits sometimes and it was just really, really fun. So yeah, that it was a fun theme. It was really, really, and their fans were just ravenous. They were great. So you told me this before. I told my brother this. He let me know that he actually had the Mono Puff uh, CD, the album. And uh, one night in college, him and his girlfriend at the time got into a huge, huge fight. They ended up having like a really serious conversation, decided that they'll work it out and stay together. And I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing crazy, but the way he described it was uh, within hours, she had made fun of the Monopuff CD and that was the last straw and uh, he broke up with her. That is so crazy. Yeah, my brother's a really tightly wound guy. It just, but yeah. what I really want to know, what the fans really want to know is Mary Birdsong. What was your best night ever? So the pressure of like thinking of this is kind of intimidating. Um, and like my, my initial thought was like, oh, it's got to be some sort of like romantic night. Like I did think of a romantic night. I feel like the, the nights that I remember with the most fondness and the most sparkle are ones that were sort of equally scary or nervous or, you know, exciting. And, uh, but this has always been, it's just got like burned into my brain. And I don't even know how specifically clear I'll be on details. And it, I don't think it's, I'm like giving you disclaimer after disclaimer, which is so classically, maybe it wasn't best. You know what? Never mind. The thing, the memory that stays with me, and I'll, and I'll give you sort of the end of it first. 
the end image is me outside a New York City club. I believe it was it was either Town Hall or Roseland. So the image I want to paint here is me standing next to a dumpster, smoking a cigarette, drinking a Diet Coke. I always had a Diet Coke in my bag, 16 ounce or 20 ounce. Diet Coke and cigarettes were, they ha it was like a symbiotic relationship. And I, I couldn't have a cigarette without a Diet Coke and I couldn't have a Diet Coke without a cigarette. And I would never have a Diet Coke with food, with a meal. It was a meal unto itself, like the Diet Coke cigarette meal. And it was like, it was like a security blanket. Like if I didn't have a Diet Coke in my bag, I would feel really anxious. I'm still like this to a certain extent. My family has a very strange relationship with beverages. And um, we tend to like be rocking like three or four beverages at a time. I was standing at this dumpster with my two friends, Rita and Karen, who were relatively new friends. And I'm trying to think how old, I think I was 30 at the time uh, or 30-ish and I had just performed in a big benefit called Screen Door, which was a live stage um, one night performance uh, parody of an old movie called Stage Door. Uh, yeah, Marx Brothers, right? Uh, no, actually, it was Catherine Hepburn, I think Betty Grable, Eve Arden, like sort of a classic, sort of that same era. So I, I was thinking of room service. And the reason I mixed them up is I was in a production in high school, actually, of Stage Door. And later on in college, I was in a production of Room Service. Now, listeners, the feedback I've been getting is you want me to interject and have some more back and forth and banter with the guests. Well, this is what happens. I interrupted her nice story with false information. Um, and I apologize. Sorry about that. Your fans might have been wondering the same thing. So it's this sort of classic 40s movie about all these, uh, a boarding house and they, they're not allowed to have gentlemen there. And, uh, you know, and there's like a landlady and they're all struggling and like they, they don't have any money and they share the same dress. And like, are you wearing the dress on Tuesday? Well, I need to wear it Wednesday. So you have to get it clean. You know, it's just like really adorable sort of Frank Capra-esque movie. I can't remember who directed it, but, and Catherine Hepburn is the star of it. Um, I came to New York in 1986 to go to NYU. Uh, me, Tom Lennon, Ben Garant, and Carrie Kenny all went to uh, NYU together, to the Tisch School of the Arts. But we didn't have any classes together. Um, I did not know them when they were doing the States. I think I just had seen them around. But um, we, we knew, I think we knew that we were all in the same theater school. It was a big school, so we didn't have any classes together. But then after after college, when I was doing all of you know this hustle and bustle and doing like little um, performances, and we would just see each other around um, performing, and this probably was about 2000, 1999, somewhere around there, maybe 2001. So I was at college for theater. I busted my ass, couldn't afford it, worked two jobs all through college, couldn't get arrested, you know, was constantly putting up like showcases or shows or writing little, you know, doing sketch comedy. And I just couldn't get an agent. And it was a catch 22. You can't get an agent and you can't get an audition unless you have an agent. So, but then you can't get an agent if you don't have a job and you can't get a job because you don't have an audition. So it's like, you just feel like you're being kept out 
you know, and it was um, a long time of trying really, really hard. But I, I think I wasn't like an easy uh, person to cast because I kind of looked, you know, I was young and, uh, you know, I wasn't hideous looking. And but then I would sort of like open my mouth and I was like, hey, guys, how's it going? Like I just sounded like Rosemary from Dick Van Dyke. So I wasn't like a mom who would just be like, bye, Lysol, you know. And so it was really frustrating. But I did sort of get immersed in sketch comedy, which I loved and started writing, which I loved. I just was never a person that could sit by the phone for an audition. I was just constantly creating. And basically what happened was I got so frustrated and so burnt out after waitressing and all of that, that I was like, you know what? Fuck you show business. You clearly don't want me. And so I'm going to stop chasing you. I'm not going to do anything. I feel like once I kind of like gave myself permission to not succeed, okay, let's say I don't make it. Am I just going to like kill myself? Because if I'm not, I may as well like accept myself and have a good time. Nobody's asking you to stay here and be miserable. Loosen up, like have a good time. Either be here or don't. It seemed like once I made that sort of cross and started like taking care of myself and getting sober and developing a life outside of auditioning and developing interests, that everything just kind of rolled out in front of my feet, like effortlessly, instead of like banging my head against a wall. A guy named Kevin Maloney, who runs a theater company called Tweed, T-W-E-E-D, Incorporated. They do a lot of sort of drag performance and performance art and sort of irreverent, disruptive sort of vibe uh, downtown theater. And he's just really smart and great and the sweetest man in the world. And he had seen me, I guess, do Judy Garland a couple of times somewhere. And he got the idea, like, what if we did a parody of Stage Door, but we recast the Catherine Hepburn role with Judy Garland? In other words, what if Judy Garland had played the Catherine Hepburn role? And so he asked me if I wanted to do this. And I was really excited. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but it was kind of an interesting benefit. And it was it was a weird thing because we were all like holding our scripts. It was kind of one of those shows where everybody's walking around with their scripts but it had a packed house. And it also had, um, I think, a, a drag performer named Hedda Lettuce and Barla Jean Merman and Flotilla DeBarge and Miss Coco and Lipsinka, just all these really sort of iconic drag performers. And the, my favorite one, I think of all time, Charles Bush. He He's just a sort of a legendary performer and has written Broadway plays at the same time. Like he's a really accomplished writer. And he turns up on Turner Classic Movies sometimes too as, as sort of a, like an expert on old movies and any interviews people and stuff. And I didn't know any of these people really. Uh, there was an, act an actress that's a big Broadway musical theater comedian chick named Jackie Hoffman. She was in it. Wallace Shawn, <laughs> who's mostly known, I think, for The Princess Bride. And his, um, I can never remember his last name, Andre, is it Andre Bishop? From My Dinner with Andre. Joan Rivers was in it. Uh, who else? It was like all these like celebrities and drag performers and me. And I remember just like being really terrified because I tend to be a lot more comfortable 
I mean, similar in a way to the little scenario I described of when I get anxious. When I got anxious as a girl, as a little girl, I would kind of disappear, go find a wig and come back and like control the anxiety by performing. Like I would sort of superimpose this controlled environment where I'm going to do bits and then you're going to laugh or applaud or whatever and then everything will be okay. And so I'm a little more comfortable doing sort of that sidekick, you know, best friend kind of character than I like I never really had any I don't know, aspirations or desire to be sort of the leading lady. But here is this guy who runs this tweed company. And he was like giving me this huge vote of confidence saying, no, I want to build the show around you doing Judy because he believed in me that much. It almost makes me want to cry just saying that out loud because on the one hand, like I'm, I can be very confident about my talent or my, you know, skill or whatever. But on the other hand, I'm like many performers, deeply, deeply insecure and flawed. And I wasn't a celebrity or anything. Like I was nobody. So just was really, um, I think it had a big impact on me. Somebody who I really respected and admired saying like, no, you're, you're totally worth this. And I was just terrified. I was terrified out of my mind. I was convinced I was going to fail. I was convinced everybody was going to find out I was not talented. You know, the jig was up and I was going to be outed as a fraud. I'm a pretty small person. And I just remember singing this song, um, putting on the ring. Mm-hmm. It was this magical moment of like the lights hitting me just right and just feel that feeling that we all try and we keep chasing once we felt it where we had them. You know, it's that feeling of like just absolute power, absolute serenity, absolute connection. There's no wall between me and you. We're all one. We're all in a big room having a good time. And somehow I've been a part of creating this smile on your face and it was just overwhelming feeling of I do belong I do have a right to be here I do I can hold my own with the big time you know and the fun part was I think because nobody really knew I was just some chick that Kevin saw do Judy and Jackie Hoffman's downtown show in a basement one night you know that it had this like even more intense effect I think on people they were like what the fuck like you know because again, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like small, but I have like a really big voice. And it was that, that real like David and Goliath moment too. I think where I was like approaching Goliath, which was the crowd and thinking, I can't, I can't do it. I'm not going to win. I'm going to, he's going to kill me. You know, but I like took out my slingshot <laughs> and I hit my mark and I sang my song and I didn't die. And I was just hit with this huge wall of, of love and appreciation. At the end of it, there were all these like reporters and press photographers that rushed the stage and they were just kind of taking my picture and asking me all these questions and congratulating me. And, and I, and I knew my friend Rita and Karen were in the audience and not too long ago, the three of us had met at a sort of retreat, you know, um, where people go to like quit drinking or quit smoking or quit being codependent or whatever. And we met there and just, you know, had this intense bond because of what we went through together there. As soon as the show was over, I found Karen and Rita in the audience. And I was like, will you guys come smoke a cigarette with me? 
I lost it. I was bawling. I was crying because it was like almost too much. And all those feelings of like, I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this came up. And I feel like to get the gift of, of having that experience and like of facing that fear, a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, a lot of times I feel like certain maybe levels of success I haven't allowed myself to experience yet because it would mean I'd have to face the fear that goes along with it. So to give myself the gift of like just showing up when I was so terrified and like it going well and to stand next to that dumpster smoking cigarettes with my two friends from rehab, I it was that feeling of like all of this attention and this love is too much. These people don't know me. I need to stand with people who know me at my worst who've seen all my like scars and my shame and my whatever, who still like showed up tonight because they love me anyway. You know what I mean? And so that was what I was craving at the end of the show. I need to just sit at a dumpster and smoke a cigarette and a Diet Coke and, and hang out with these two chicks and laugh with people who know me. And so that moment of standing behind the dumpster, it's just forever been burned in my memory. and. It could easily be titled the most terrifying night ever, but it just was the best night ever. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a great story. I, I know that the, the show's not about me, but I, I've mentioned it on the show before. I wouldn't say I have self-esteem issues, but I have pretty low self-esteem. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking about doing this podcast for five years um, before I actually did it because of that fear you were just talking about. It, not so much the fear of rejection, uh, more so a fear of not being good enough. Kind of like uh, what you were just talking about. And uh, we're only a few episodes in. Some of my very good friends come up to me. It's like, hey, can I give you some constructive feedback? And I say, no. Because I don't think I could handle it. Like, I, I, I'm 36. I know what's wrong with the podcast. It's my first time doing it. But I don't know. It just has like a really uh, crummy effect on me. And I'm, I feel like I'm always on the verge of just giving up. But the caveat of that, and to bring it back to, you know, how funny and talented I am, the positive feedback has been extremely unexpected and it means the world to me. I want you to know you took a chance on me, brand new podcast, even before it was out. So it was just an idea for a podcast and you saying stuff like you like the idea or that you like my art or that you even listen to an entire episode in a way that kind of uh, gives me hope that maybe I am, I, I, I might be good enough and, and I won't give up just yet. So Amazing. Um, thank you for that. But um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you said what you did about how you sort of had a similar uh, experience doing the podcast. And I also, I'm going to just throw this out there. I also think it's a very Irish thing. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. Whole like, who do you think you are? Oh, are you going to go be a big star in Hollywood? Make a big yeah. podcast, are you? Eh, fake off. You know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm one of four siblings. It's uh, Matt, Ian, Paige, Brendan. And it's rare that all four of us are together with my dad. But the last time, I finally just flat out asked him, Dad, which one of us disappoints you the most? <laughs> Again, Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Listeners, we all know it. We're all saying it. I'm going to say it again. Game of Thrones sucks now. But you know what show doesn't suck on HBO? Succession. I'm pretty sure it's Secession. You know who's on Secession? Mary Birdsong. Check it out. If you haven't watched Reno 911, it's one of the funniest shows ever. Highly recommend that. You can follow Mary Birdsong on Instagram. Her Instagram is Mary Birdsong Official. Spell it how it sounds. 
she also has an awesome YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TV. Her Twitter majigger is at MaryBirdsong. So it's the same as Instagram, but without the official. But, uh, I mean, it, uh, it, it seems pretty official. Mary herself has a hilarious podcast called The Oval Office Tapes. Uh, Mary, if you haven't done so yet, and you want an episode where we reenact that scene in the Oval Office from Superman 2 that we talked about earlier, I'm way down. You could be Lex Luthor, I could be Otis, it'll be a riot. Um, And you can find that podcast, you know, wherever you find podcasts. I always find it really weird when people tell you where to find podcasts while you're listening to a podcast. So, um, again, the Oval Office Tapes. Check it out. It's really cool. Our website is bestnighteverpodcast.com, where you can find original artwork uh, that pertains to each individual episode, including this one. Our Instagram handle is at bestnighteverpodcast. Our Twitter majigger is bnepodcast. Our email address is bestnighteverpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact me on any of those things. Um, and I'd love to hear from you, especially you guys, Sacramento, and especially you guys anywhere else in the world. The background music for today's episode was provided by the End Friends Project, which was a, a group of musicians in 1997, went camping and recorded a compilation of really good music. Uh, and they donated a, that song to me. So thank you so much, The End Friend Projects. Uh, folks, if you want more of their music, let me know, and uh, uh, I'm sure they'd be totally down to send the songs to whoever. It's really, really good if you're into bluegrass, uh, camping, and uh, 1997. Our theme song, which, if you haven't noticed, has been the same theme song every episode, is provided by Ghost of Lester Bangs. If you're a musician or you're in a band and you want to donate some music, send it on over. I already gave you the email address, and I'm not going to repeat myself. You guys are going to be held accountable. I already said it. not going to say it again, okay? But you know what I will say again? Whether you're listening to this in the morning, afternoon, or night, I hope it's the best ever. See you next time.